Welcome everyone to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen. It's been my honor to be the Bible teacher for this ministry for over 20 years. We rejoice to be able to come to you every weekday. This is a program of the International Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism, where our focus is on equipping and engaging Christians around the world in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. We've been at it for over 30 years now and are blessed that God has been willing to use us to play a part in proclaiming Christ to the nations. To learn more about our ministry and its mission fellowship here in Boise, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. There's a notion that the God of the New Testament is unlike the God of the Old Testament in this way. The Old Testament God is an angry, wrathful God, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and forgiveness. Well, that idea doesn't hold up to a simple reading of the Bible. You can start with Romans chapter 1, verse 18. There it says, in the New Testament, mind you, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's this passage we're considering today. We like to remember and teach our children the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We don't always teach them John 3.36. He that believes on the son has everlasting life. He that believes not on the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains upon him. I note to you that in the book of Matthew, for every mention by the Lord Jesus of heaven, there are three mentions by Jesus of hell. That's an interesting thing to take in mind. John Phillips, who's a commentator, writes this, quote, Jesus, quote, referred to the destiny of the damned nearly twice as often as he did that of the blessed. The New Testament unfolds before us with a steady reminder that in the midst of the grace and mercy of God providing salvation to all who believe and trust in the Son, there is this awful reality of the wrath of God that abides upon all those who reject Him and one day will climax in an ultimate release upon all of the earth. If you read the book of Romans here, you'll see that actually on 10 different times, in fact, here's an assignment for you. You can go, if you've got a Bible app on your phone or on your computer, you type in the wrath of God and you read the places where the phrase the wrath of God is used in the book of Romans, you'll see it 10 times. Read all 10 of them. Paul takes this idea of the wrath of God and he sets the gospel that is the message of Romans, he sets it within the context or he sets it against the backdrop of impending wrath. The good news comes, the gospel comes, but it comes in light of the fact that all individuals are facing the wrath of God. Listen to verse 18 again. The wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This morning, again, we're just going to speak on this idea of the wrath of God. We'll look at this next phrase, all ungodliness and righteousness of men, on another occasion. But what we need to see here is that God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace and goodness and justice and righteousness and wrath. That's what the Bible teaches us. Let's consider this a little bit more. Let's consider what it means when we say the wrath of God. And here's a brief definition for the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's settled, consistent, constant antagonism towards sin and evil. 
It's God's constant antagonism towards sin and evil. It is the wrath of God is the response of a holy God against the expression of all unholiness. It is the response of a loving God against the sin that attacks all of his love interests and wars against all of his love interests. Wrath, in a sense, when you read it in the New Testament, in this light, if you put it together, is the, the content of judgment that is pending upon the sinner based upon the justice of God. There is building up a judgment against the one who is rejecting God and rebelling against God and sinning against God and who is, as a result, being a purveyor of sin in all of God's creation. And there is upon that person this content of judgment that's coming against him that is embodying or it expresses or holds within it the wrath of God. And so Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 5, says that we are storing up for ourselves wrath against the day of wrath. Our sin and our activity in sin and our rebellion against God and our choosing our own way and our projecting that sin upon others around us in the face of God's goodness and God's salvation, we are ourselves storing up, in a sense, this content of wrath or judgment of God against sin. Wrath ultimately, the wrath of God ultimately is the expression of judgment that is applied with finality by the sovereign power of God at the end of the age. And so the Bible speaks often of the final day of wrath that is coming because of God. Now, there are some suggest that this idea of the wrath of God is merely a principle of justice that is set in motion when we sin. In other words, it's a, an impersonal act of God in which, in a sense, there's almost a mechanical response of his justice that comes upon those who turn against him and sin. But in a sense, in this idea, God is impassive. He's just simply letting the mathematical consequences, you might say, of turning away from God and living in sin fall upon those who behave in that way. Wrath is what men, in this sense, bring upon themselves when they go against the moral law of God in the same way that they would fall to the ground if they jumped out of window and the laws of gravity would take hold of them. The law, the moral law takes hold of them when they sin against God and just carries them into consequences. And this is what the Bible means by the wrath of God. God is removed. He's impersonally and dispassionately looking on as men engage and encounter the wrath of God in this way. But the wrath of God, when you read it in the Bible, seems to be quite a personal thing. The very idea of wrath seems to indicate something of personal expression. Some individuals will say, well, there's no emotion in God in these things. Well, I have to tell you, I would rather God feel some emotion when he brings his judgments against sin than to do it without any emotion and passion whatsoever. Do you know, we had to punish our children at times. They were naughty. They didn't do what they were told to do. In fact, they were outright disobedience to us and sometimes outright defiant. And you began to realize that there was a little bit of a battle being staked here. They were going to continue to be naughty until you stopped them from being naughty. And... Uh, that kind of made you angry. You wanted to hug them. You wanted to love them, but you disciplined them said. And then after you're done, you took them in your arms and you gave them a hug, but you, there was a little bit of uh, anger behind it. And it wasn't entirely wrong. In fact, a dispassionate, some cold, hard legislation of the law would not be an expression of love. It would be an expression of indifference. Just some calculating observance of the law and the rules. No. This is not how God reveals himself. The wrath of God is personal against sin. 
because sin is a challenge to his personal holiness and his personal justice and his personal righteousness. And the wrath of God is personal because sin, as it comes upon us and is expressed from us, is an attack on that which he loves and has interest in. Uh, if you were in your front yard working in your front yard and you had a little child, your little baby, and you put your little toddler on a blanket to kind of play with some toys on the blanket in the sun as you were working in your garden and all of a sudden a neighbor's dog came to the yard growling and rushing towards that blanket where your child was, how do you react? What kind of intensity comes upon you? You, you would feel a rise of anger. You would be in complete revolt against such an insinuation attack on what is yours and what you love and you would come against it with a fury and that's, that's something of a picture of God's wrath against sin and the, pro the propagation of sin through our lives. So we should not think that God is dispassionate or unemotional when we speak of his wrath. One of the reasons, by the way, that people reject the idea of God's wrath is they compare it with their own wrath and those events when human beings gather in a rage and a riot against some great offense and this usually leads to moments in which they lose control and they vent an eruption of protest and anger and the, that's how we get road rage or that's how we get these great protests that go on where people go march through the streets and overturn cars and break windows and set buildings on fire and that's their rage and that's their wrath and they know oddly enough the same generation that are conducting themselves in this way want to believe that God is a docile God of love while they carry out their, quote, acts of justice and their acts of riot against injustice. And it tells you that deep down inside, they know what is motivating their actions and their activity. They know that it's not entirely pure and just and right and good and true. And they don't want to put the same label upon God. Very same people running riot in the streets, want us to believe that God is a God of docile love, who doesn't judge anybody and doesn't harm anybody. And but when we look at the passage and we see this, we have to understand that nonetheless, our strong and violent reactions against what we think are unjust reflects something of the truth that God builds a strong, violent reaction against what he knows is unjust. But here's the difference. God is never out of control. God's rage is never one that is out of control. God's responses are always in proportion to what is before him, and they are exacting to an exacting degree of what is due and what is right in his justice. His wrath is curtailed by his own righteousness and complete justice. We might think of an illustration of this. The Lord Jesus, on two different occasions, came to the temple. There were individuals who had overtaken a part of the temple that was supposed to be used for the Gentile people to come and pray and meet with God. But instead, the leaders of the temple, the Sadducees in this case, had set up a market or fair in that place where trade and barter could take place. When people come in to bring their lambs for sacrifice, they would always find something wrong with the lambs they brought. So they'd have to buy an approved lamb and it would be at an exorbitant price and they were using it to take advantage of the people and their worship and they'd made that place a marketplace to conduct their business and as a result they'd pushed out the Gentile community from the very place in the temple that had been set up for them to meet with God and worship God and the Lord Jesus on two different occasions we're told made a whip 
and he went through the marketplace and he was overturning tables and he was whipping people and he was beating them. He drove out the money changers in the temple and he said, this place has been called a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. There was something violent about his actions, something calculated and he was angry. And it wasn't the first time, by the way, that he saw this trade going on in the temple. But at just the right time and just the right moment, he made a demonstration of God's attitude towards what men were doing in that place. And he upturned the tables and his lashes fell upon those who were acting unjustly. But here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Not one coin flying through the air as he flipped through those tables landed or struck an innocent party or an innocent member at that time. Not one lash they swung about, swung and fell upon a person who was simply trying to find a lamb that he could trade in so that he could go and make his offering in the temple. It was only meant for and against those who were carrying on this crime and cheating the people in this way. And this is a revelation of the wrath of God. The righteous anger, the righteous calculated, controlled anger of God against sin. That's the wrath of God. Here's what we have to ask next. The question is, how is the wrath of God revealed to us? It says, the wrath of God is revealed to us. And there are any number of ways in which we can consider this. And one of the ways we could say it is, well, the wrath of God is revealed. Before we sign off for this broadcast, I want to remind you of a ministry website that we've developed. It is testyourtestimony.com. Our concern is that there are many in our churches who do not have a true born-again relationship with Jesus Christ and so face the prospect of his rejection at the judgment seat in the last day. Our pity for these has made us develop the site testyourtestimony.com in order to apply the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5 to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. For now, I look forward to our next time partaking together of the bread of life. Till then, may God bless you.